Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 17. We'll be back in Proverbs today. Last week we had anniversary weekend and we uh, focused on where our church had come from and talked about some things there. But today we'll be back in uh, the book of Proverbs chapter 17. You know, uh, as you remember now, uh, these Proverbs have been basically, uh, we've been looking at each one as a single concept. Uh, They're just invaluable. They're really incredible. You know, we've been going through them basically one proverb at a time, uh, which gives us a principle or uh, through the proverb uh, on different aspects of life. It's been really, 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 really uh, rewarding, talking about a lot of different good things. And again, today, we're going to take them uh, one at a time and we're going to look at each one in its concept. Now, today is going to be just a, a little bit different simply because of where we have been uh, the last two Thursday nights. I did not plan this. It just kind of happened. As you know, not this Thursday night, but last Thursday night, uh, Amy from uh, Nebraska asked me a question on the uh, uh, canon of Scripture and the Apocrypha, and we got into that. And I laid out uh, quite a bit of material for you. And then John Gowans uh, came to me afterwards, and he wanted me to lay out the next, this last Thursday night, the impact of Westcott and Hort. How that they, uh, what their contribution was to corrupting uh, the Word of God. And really, they are the key that kind of brings it into the modern era. That they, it's, when you understand that, it explains a lot. I had no idea. I wasn't planning on it. I can't, you can't plan these things. Uh, and I really never looked at it quite this way till on Monday morning. I always start, uh, you know, getting ready for Sunday. I kind of get it in my mind what I want to do. And so I got into Proverbs chapter 17, and the next two verses was uh, 23 and 24. And when I began to look at that, immediately I saw something that I had really never really seen before, or maybe I did, but I just didn't ever put it all together based on where we had been uh, on Thursday nights. And that was probably uh, one of the greatest concepts that will tie in to what we talked about last Thursday night, and then the Thursday night before. You know, sometimes God does it that way. It's kind of like a combination, one, two, three punch. Uh, you'll give you three quick jabs, then you'll get a lot of material out of it and put a lot of things together. And that's basically what we have here. So when we talk about Proverbs chapter 23 and 24 today, we're going to put it into a context that will really help you understand some more things about your Bible and about history and about uh, what's going on around us. We are living in times that are unparalleled as far as things being in a mess. Everybody is looking to the election, which just is a short couple, two weeks away, as that it's going to solve something. Uh, a lot of people say that if Hillary gets it, you know, the country will go worse. If Trump gets it, the country will go good, and all of those things, you know. And the truth of the matter is, there is a no election in America's future that's going to change anything. That doesn't mean you don't do your part, and it doesn't mean that you don't, uh, you know, uh, do what you need to do and follow your own conscience. But I'm telling you this, uh, America is finished. She has been for quite a while now. And it doesn't really matter who gets in. It really doesn't matter what happens. This You're going to see from today, hopefully, based on what we talked about Thursday and what we talked about the Thursday before, thanks to Amy, Uh, where this country is at and why. I want you to leave informed today. You know, most of you are young kids. And when I grew up, Gary grew up, 
Vance grew up, some of you older grew up, we learned stuff in school. I mean, we had a Bible study one night, and I, I, I was talking about, uh, a while back, I was talking about Martin Luther, the, the Reformation Martin Luther. And we were going on, and I, I laid out how important he was. It wasn't that Sunday, somebody come to me and said, wasn't he killed down in Alabama by that guy? <laughs> Wrong Martin Luther. There's kids that don't know who Mussolini was. Kids in school, you learn a lot of good things, but you know what's missing in school? And it's by design. You, many of you know math much better than I do. Calculus, geometry, geobalter, all that stuff. I know nothing about math. I, 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 I just, I don't have to worry about it. <laughs> but you know what's, you learn a lot of good things, but you know what's missing in school? History. History's missing in school. And it's by design. They want to keep you in the dark when it, they want to raise generations to generations that has lost its history of who we are because of where the country wants to take you. And they have to get you to not to know where you've been so they can lead you someplace that you'll think is okay. And I see it all the time. And, uh, you know, many of you younger guys and gals are in your 20s and your, uh, you know, late 20s, middle 20s. You're, uh, and I realize we have sharper people here than in most cases. But some of your friends, you know, you, they, they don't have an idea. They think Taco Bell is a Mexican phone company. They, 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 don't, they don't get it. <laughs> I had a kid one time, we were talking about raising the minimum wage for manual labor, and he thought that was the president of Mexico, you know? <laughs> I want you to be informed. I want you to know why we are where we're at and where we're going. And I want you to know that why you're living in the time you're living in, nothing is going to change anything. It's not going to get any better, it's only going to get worse. And there's a reason for that. And I, wanna, I want you to understand based on the last two Thursday nights where this thing is going. I think today it will help you. Proverbs chapter, Proverbs chapter 17, verse 23 and 24. A wicked man taketh a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. Wisdom is before him that hath understanding. But to the eyes of a fool are in the ends of the earth. Drake, would you stand up and ask God blessing on the sermon this morning for me, pal? Thank you so much, Lord, for everything you do in our lives, Lord. The fact that you came down and died for our sins and suffered on that cross so that we can uh, have a relationship with you and have salvation, Lord. And I thank you so much for your word, Lord, how it, it leads and guides us into all truth and shows us the, the truth about what's going on in this lifetime, Lord. And though it gets scary, Lord, we still have your perfect, infallible uh, word, Lord. And we can cling to it with all we have, Lord, and it will always prosper us and help us along our way. And I pray that you'll just give our pastor, Lord, the words to say, to speak to our hearts, to convict us, and just to motivate us to grow deeper in our relationships with you and to 
learn more about your word, Lord. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, verse 23 says, A wicked man taketh a gift out of the bosom to pervert the ways of judgment. Now, the verse is very clear, and it's talking about bribing somebody. It's talking about using bribery, taking a secret gift out, giving it to somebody so you can get something the way you want it or you can get something uh, for yourself. And of course, we all know that this is business as usual in the business world and certainly the political world. Uh, The political world and people who are involved in politics uh, uh, will use their power uh, and the ability to be in a position to, to make money by perverting a judgment, getting something for somebody by getting a kickback or getting a payoff. For time and eternity, construction companies that wanted government jobs or government contracts, they would, they would find the right people, get the right things to them, to get the contract. In Washington, we have what they call lobbyist groups, and they, they're for big corporations. They'll lobby against something. They'll have what they call special interest groups. Wall Street with the bankers, the tobacco companies, the beer companies, all will, all will get whoever has the power to get what they want. They'll get them free paid vacations to the Bahamas. They'll give them free gifts. They'll give them free cars. They'll give them monies. They'll give them all expense tickets out to wherever around the world they want to go. All because they're giving them a gift so they will pervert judgment in some way that it will benefit that person. People are fed up with the corruption in Washington. They really are. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons that Trump is so popular is because people think that uh, he'll put an end to the corruption in Washington because he says he will. I mean, it doesn't matter to me whether he does or he doesn't. Fixing the corruption in Washington is not going to fix America. You have to fix the corruption in the pulpit before you can fix America. It's just that simple. But you know what? They'll never get it. Write my name in. Vote me for president. And we'll get the thing going. We'll be in a war in two days, I guarantee you, with the whole world. Last couple of weeks, three, four weeks, the... Thousands of emails have come out, allegedly Hillary Clinton, who used the Secretary of State's office to make all kinds of money and all kinds of deals, giving foreign governments access to her for them making a donation to her. I don't care. I'm sure, allegedly, probably Trump did the same thing. You don't get where you're at in this world and make a lot of money by not playing the system. You just don't. And honestly, that's why a real Bible-believing Christian could never be in politics and never be a politician. I hear people all the time, well, he's running for governor, or he's running for this, or he's running for that, or she's running for this, and they're a Christian. The moment they say that, I don't want anything to do with it. You can't be a Bible-believing, Bible-honoring Christian and be in politics. I shouldn't say, you can for about 15 seconds. Because you can't play the game. You can't play the game. You know why I'm not popular among other preachers in other churches? number of reasons. But you know why I don't have, anybody has anything to do with me and they look at me and us as oddballs? You know what the bottom line reason is? I don't play the game. Never have. Never have. You know, in the legal system, whatever trouble you get in, if you've got enough money and you get the right lawyer, you can get out of it. There's nothing that can't be fixed today almost without, without, uh, without exception. And, you know, and I've always thought it was strange. This is probably just me. You know, the office of the President of the United States pays $400,000 a year. If you run a four-year term, that's $1,600,000 that you make as an income. Senators and Congressmen make much less than that. 
And yet, I've often asked myself, why would somebody, why would somebody, why would somebody in the right mind spend $400 billion, $400 million in an election campaign to win a job that only pays $400,000 a year? I'll tell you why. Money and power. When you get into position and somebody wants something, they'll have a secret gift inside their bosom that they'll give you. August Spence paying trip to Paris for two weeks. Lake Tahoe in the finest hotel. All the things that you ever wanted to kick back. That's why. And I'm going to tell you something. Not only do we see it in politics, we see it in Christianity. We see it in churches. We see the same thing. I had a guy one time that I knew, and he was a friend of mine. He was a, he was a, a missionary to a certain group of, of young uh, men uh, that were in the military. And uh, he, uh, he had a guy that, uh, you know, he had a, a place that they worked out of. And he would travel around and preach. And he was a good preacher, and he would raise money uh, for his deal. And, but he always needed money. He never had enough to get what he needed done. So he was always working the angles. I had another pastor that I was friends with that was out west in a little place called uh, Montana. And uh, this guy went out and, and, uh, and, uh, and preached for him. Here's the way they play it. The pastor got up, introduced the missionary. The missionary got up, church about this size, already really taking good care of the pastor financially. You know what he preached? He preached over there in 1 Timothy where uh, a bishop is worthy of double honor. And he told that church that you're not doing right before God if right now tonight you don't double his salary. And on the spot, the church being full of good people who want to do what's right. They voted that night, doubled his income. And the missionary got all the money he needed then. See how it works? He'll be preaching here next week, by the way. I wouldn't let him within a thousand mile radius of this church. That's what they do, kids. That's the way it works. It just isn't in government. It just isn't in government. It's everywhere. It's in Christianity and everything you see. I've seen pastors come to the place where they'll, they'll give out the office of, they, they want an agenda that they want to get done. Some things that they want to do. So they'll pass out in big churches the title of deacon. But it, to them, it's status, it's power. He'll give, you the, he'll give you the title of deacon, but in the deacon's meaning, you always give him what he wants. See how it works? It's exactly how it works. It's worked that way for years. Rich and powerful people using what they have to get what they want by a gift out of the bosom. And I've seen it all of my life. And it's a thing where that's the way it just works. In the ministry, there's one rule that you must follow. Really, there's a lot of rules. But there's, in talking about that, there's one fundamental rule that you have to follow. Never as a pastor, 
Put yourself in a position or allow yourself to be in a position where you take from your people. Now, tomatoes are okay. Here, preacher, I got some extra corn. That's fine. But don't expect to get something free just because you're the pastor. Pay your own way. Don't put yourself in a position where you think because you're the pastor that everybody owes you something. Hey, you don't owe me anything. If anybody owes anybody anything, I owe you. If we owe anybody anything, we owe him. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe me nothing. Like I said, if anything, I owe you. You're my responsibility. I'm not your responsibility to a certain degree. And I've seen it all my life. Never, and never do that. Never let powerful people intimidate you with what they have so you be in obligation to them. Years ago, we had a guy in a, another church that I was associated with. He was a very powerful guy and he was a big, big business guy. He came up to the pastors and we had about, oh, I don't know, 20 staff members, probably 19 more than we needed. And he would come up to them and he'd say, he, and, you know, he was always, always everything. And he'd come up to those guys and he'd say, you know what? I appreciate what you do in this church. And I know you don't make a lot of money. You know what? I want to buy you a new suit. Well, these guys were just, oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that's great. Oh, yeah, I like that. I, I, I really would. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. So he'd take them out. He'd take them someplace nice. I'd buy my suits at Target. You're laughing. They got some good suits there. If you can buy the pieces and match them up, sometimes the shades are a little off, but the lighting always helps out. So as long as you stay out of the bright sunlight, you're okay. But anyway, they would you take him down there to, to uh, uh, Jack Henry's? You know, some four, five hundred. I'm not talking about a Sears and Roebuck. I'm talking about a, you know. I remember back when seersucker suits were in. Remember those? I had one. Sears had the suits and I was a sucker. I bought one, you know. But but he'd tell you about $500 suits. They'd come back. Sunday morning, we all had to wear suits back then. And they, hold on, they would, and he, uh, he came up to me one time and he said, Hey, man, I appreciate what you do around here. I want to take you out and buy your new suit. And I said, well, I really appreciate that. But you know what? We just had a missions conference last week. And honestly, that missionary that was here, he needs something more than I do. Why don't you just take what you were giving to me and give to him? Now, he got upset at that. Because I was refusing his gift. I knew what he was doing because I knew what he did to the other guys. He was in business. So he would buy them, get them obligated to him, and then when he wanted names for his mailing list for his business, he'd come and ask them for their Rolodex, the people on their rolls. I'm not giving you anything. And you know why I can say I'm not going to give it to you? Because I'm not obligated to you. Oh, it goes on, kids. It goes on, man. That verse is so true. You ain't seen nothing yet. We're just getting warmed up. We're just like an F-14 down on the runway, just warming up the turbines. Wait till we get taken down the runway here. Pay your own way. Give to others without ever having an ulterior mode of getting something back. Because in New Testament Christianity, it'll be just like in politics. There'll be people who try to buy their way into everything with bribery. A gift from the bosom. Now, doctrinally, 
I mean, that's easy to see. That's an easy concept. But doctrinally, here's where we're going to get into it. Doctrinally, this verse in our context here will be the direct reverence to the Antichrist, the wicked man, and all he gets going out, all he gets, all he gets by doing this down through history. Now, there's so much in this verse, doctrinally. Important to know how that the devil and the Antichrist works down through history and has prepared everything the way it is today for what's coming our way. The reality of this verse. The devil is preparing for his son, the Antichrist, to come to planet Earth, just like God is preparing for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come in the second coming of Christ. And it's right before our eyes today. A great lesson in history, which gives great perspective as the devil of the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. You know, in the Old Testament, and what I'm about to give you is really vital. It really is a foundational concept that you build everything else on. In the Old Testament, the devil controlled and ran the world through the Gentile nations and their military might. In Daniel chapter 2, they're listed for you, most of them. You have Egypt, you have Babylon, you have Persia, you have Assyria, you have the Greeks, and then you have the Romans. They were all nations that the devil literally used to take control of the world or the known world. When Egypt was in power, he ran the world through Egypt. When Babylon was in power, the devil, through that nation and her armies, ran the world in Persia, Assyria, when the Greeks came into power with Alexander the Great, the whole known world was conquered by the Greeks. And when the Romans got into power, they finished off what Alexander the Great couldn't get done, and Rome conquered all the world. All roads lead to Rome. Never forget that. Never forget that. All of these were nations that the devil used to literally take control of the world. They are the tools of the devil to stop God's people in the Old Testament through physical attacks, physical bondage, and physical conflict with their armies to subdue them. You, the whole Bible in the Old Testament is nothing but battles. In the New Testament, it changed. You need to understand this. The Bible says that wisdom going before him that hath understanding. Okay, here it comes. Let me give you some. In the New Testament, it changes. He knows now that the world is changing. The devil does. So he has to change his tactics and change his plan. This is the great concept of going from the kingdom of heaven, which is a literal kingdom built on literal nations where they fight literal battles, to the kingdom of God, which is now a spiritual world where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. It's a masterpiece of understanding. In the literal kingdom of heaven, he fought with nations to subdue God's nation. In the kingdom of God, he fights a spiritual warfare to destroy God's church. And in both cases, his goal is to run the world and prepare the world for the coming man of sin. You do remember that the devil's number one goal when he was back there in Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, his number one problem was that he wanted to be like the most high God. He hasn't lost that desire. 
Right now, the Bible says he is the God of this world, but he wants to be the very Christ and run everything. And he's got his plans along that line. The Old Testament, he ran the world through nations. He knew now in the New Testament that would no longer work. He knew we were coming into the church age. He knew that God was moving into a spiritual kingdom and now God was going to have a church. Where God had a nation in the Old Testament, he met that nation with his own nations. When God switched plans and went into the church age and God established his church, he decided to have his own church. And the devil started his church. Where his nations were going to run the world back there, now he's going to run the world through his church. Masterpiece. Master plan. So he needed a church. He needed a church to counterfeit God's church to control the nations of the world through his church. And to do that, what a master stroke of genius. And to do that, and in time he did that. I'm going to show you in a minute. And the key event that took place right under the noses of every great historian saved and lost. They missed it totally and completely. Will Durant wrote about, he's a historian, he wrote about 20 volumes on church history. One of his classics is comparing Caesar and Christ. He did a great one on the Renaissance. He did one on the Reformation. He was an unsaved historian who wrote about things uh, and in a completely worldly, but he, he, he saw some things. But boy, he missed this one. Philip Schaff, he writes eight or nine volumes on church history. Philip Schaff is the standard teaching uh, uh, in every Bible college on church history. Philip Schaff writes church history like he thinks the devil died somewhere along the way. He missed it completely. Newell put out two volumes on church history. Not bad. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, not a, a biblical aspect, but it's a, it's a general understanding of events, times, places, and people. He missed it completely, too. Carnes wrote a book on the understanding history of the New Testament church. His book was the standard in most Bible colleges for New Testament history. He missed it. Josephus is the great historian that everybody holds up that he writes all during the time period. He was a contemporary of many of these things. He missed it. Erdemann's. Erdemann probably puts out more books on history and, uh, and, and books on understanding history than any other publisher. They missed it. I showed you a little book Thursday night, Who's Who in Church History, written by a guy named Barker. He missed it. None of them got it. You know Why? None of them had any real wisdom and understanding based on the Bible. I've told you repeatedly that the who greatest chapters on the devil in the Old Testament are Job chapter 40 and Job chapter 41. The two greatest chapters in the New Testament, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 13. And in Job chapter 41, uh, verses 12 to 13, and I've given this to before, you find the most absolutely amazing, most telling verse in all of the Bible on how the devil works. If you want insight into the way he's worked down through history, both in the Old Testament kingdom of heaven and the New Testament spiritual kingdom of God, this is where you go. Verse 13 of chapter 41 says, 
would ask the question. It says, who can discover the face of his garment? Talking about the devil. Or who can come to him with his double brighter? And the answer is, not many. Martin Luther missed it. The writers of history all missed it. Who can discover the face of his garment? That's one of the most unique phrases in all the Bible. Face of his garment. Now, unless you have a t-shirt on this morning, it's got somebody's picture on it, your face, your garments don't have a face on it. And when you, when you stop to take that phrase and think about it through the Bible and put it into the context of what he's talking about, you'll find that the devil is likened to a man that changes clothes down through history. When you go to a wedding, whatever you're wearing right now, in most cases, if it's, a, if it's an upscale, upbeat wedding, you're going to change clothes and put some other garments on. You go to the beach, you're going to wear other garments. In the wintertime, you wear different garments than you do in the summertime. Garments are changed with the different things that we do. But you know what never changes about you? Your face. You can put all the different clothes on to try to mask who you are or where you're going, but if I see your face, I know who you are. And what the devil did, most people were looking at the clothes that he wore. And they never found in the Bible how to see his face. I think when we look at a problem we're trying to deal with, don't we always say, what's the face value? What is the face value of the devil? The face value is he'll change clothes to throw us off in history, but he'll never be able to change his face. So if you don't worry about the clothes and just look at the face and follow the face, you'll always know where he is. Who shall discover the face of his garments? Then verse 13 says, or verse 12 says, I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. Okay. Three things about the devil and the Antichrist that the Bible says uh, God will not, uh, will not hide from us. And if you want to discover his face, this is what you look for. You first understand how he controls the nation in the Old Testament through, through armies, how he controls uh, the nation in the New Testament through his church. He even gets a Bible for them. And then you begin to realize that down through history, he's a master at changing his disguise. So you look and think it's something different. Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. You may put on new clothes, but you're the same person underneath. And he may change his garments all down through history, but he's the same person underneath. And in the Bible, you'll find in history, if you're paying attention, you'll find seven garment changes. Let the devil change his clothes to throw everybody off. And he throws them off. He threw every historian off. He throws 99.9% .9 of the preachers off. He throws the Bible colleges completely off. The only one he, never, he, ever, he ever fools is somebody who has discovered the face of his garment. Now, when the Bible says, I will not conceal his parts, the parts will be the men that he uses down through history. When the Bible says, I will not conceal his power, that will be the nations that he uses. Now, when the Bible says, I will not conceal his comely proportion, that will be his church, his religion that he uses. And in our text today, it's talking about somebody using bribery to gain something. 
and he's called a wicked man. It's the Antichrist. The Antichrist has set the stage for being in a political, religious setup and using bribery to get what he wants. Every congressman, every senator, every president, every wannabe, every pastor, everybody out there, whoever uses it, only follows the model that the wicked man has already put in place. And it's going on all down through history. Has been. Without a doubt, and I don't have time to get into them today. Thursday night Bible study would be a great time if you want to know. Some of you, most, most of you already have it. The greatest garment change of them all. And we talked about this the last couple of Thursday nights. Came with Constantine the Great in 300 A.D. We talked about it. From that point on, from 300 A.D. to 2016 today, the devil has run the world through a religion. He still uses nations, but he doesn't have control of those nations directly now. He controls those nations through religion. Allow me to, allow me to enlighten for you. He he runs the world through a religion that represents his church and even has, as I said earlier, his own Bible. We talked about it last Thursday night and the Thursday night before, putting the chain of evidence together. This church is defined for you in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 18 very clearly. You couldn't miss it unless you had a Bible college education. From 500 A.D. to 1600 A.D. or thereabouts, we have what we call in history the Dark Ages. The Dark Ages, she runs this church this church runs the world by, by building a state religion for all European nations. She runs the world, grabs the world, and when she gets these nations through her religion, then she says, okay, we're going to make my church, my religion, a church-state setup. In other words, in Romania, and in, and in Germany, or in, in France, or in Italy, or in Spain, or wherever you go in South America, Central America, in Canada, when you were born into that country, you were born into a state religion. And it's the devil's religion. And it's Roman Catholicism. We're going to celebrate Thanksgiving coming up here in just a few short weeks. That's another thing that you kids don't, you all take for granted. I try to teach my kids lessons and one Thanksgiving, they were all expecting a great big old meal, which we did have. But when they came to dinner, I had read that that first Thanksgiving dinner that everybody just had four pieces of parched hard corn. So as my girls came in to eat that day, I, on their plate was just four little hard kernels of corn. They didn't get it. Dog ate the corn. Threw it up in the living room yesterday. So much for the pilgrim's progress at my house. Your pilgrim forefathers who came over on a Plymouth kids, not in a Plymouth, to Plymouth. <laughs> Got to make it clear today with some of these kids. They didn't come into Plymouth. It's like one time in Acts, I was studying there and somebody says, boy, I did, I'm confused, Bob. And I said, what's the matter? He said, in Acts 1, it says that the apostles were all together in one accord. I didn't even know they had cars back then. <laughs> I said, let it go, let it go. <laughs> then we had a girl one time, we were going out to a mall doing something with a bunch of missionaries. And she was a nice girl, but she wasn't the smartest, light, brightest light bulb in the box. And we're standing at the big mall entrance where they have the big shine. 
They all the shops are on them. And there's a little red light that says, you are here. She looks at me and she says, how do they know that? <laughs> She's the same one that was driving down the road and saw the sign deer crossing. You want to know how did they made the deer cross right there? got to be you got to be pretty explicit today when you're talking to people your pilgrim fathers came over to get away from that church state setup that was persecuting them there wasn't a pilgrim on that mayflower that hadn't either himself or lost somebody to the inquisition of europe through this church state setup of the roman catholic church that persecuted them when they came here they came here with the geneva bible that is the forerunner of your King James Bible. They came here looking for religious freedom. They came here to get away from a setup in Europe that was landlocked, that the Roman Catholic Church had locked down tight, that if you didn't become a Roman Catholic, you couldn't get a job, you got persecuted and worse in the best, on your best day and got killed and murdered and assassinated on your worst day. They came looking for religious freedom. You don't hear anything about that. You dress a bunch, at school, you dress a bunch of kids up with blunderbusses and big hats with big belt buckles and they walk around. Nobody understands the history of why they came to this country. They were being persecuted by the devil's church and they were looking for a place that they could believe the Bible, teach the Bible, preach the Bible without somebody kicking their door down in the middle of the night, putting them in jail. It's lost today. She ran the world by using religion to grant favors, bribery, to get political uh, uh, persuasion, to get kings, that she could use those nations to stop the word of God and God's plan by wiping out Christianity. And today, I have never seen a more stupid, a stupid Christianity than today. The neo-evangelical crowd has lined right up with the Roman Catholic Church. We look at the social issues in our country. We look at the problems in our country. We look at abortion and all those terrible things that go on. And here we find somebody that's an ally in some of those things. So we try to lock hands with them to do good. Let me tell you something. The devil has played that card all down through history. What is missing today is the fundamental truth that separates everything and keeps it clear. No Bible doctrine being taught anymore. I'm not saying this because it's me, because it isn't me. But I'm going to tell you, you're hard-pressed to find a church that will give you the truth on doctrine today. All you get is a bunch of fluff. They teach you like a bunch of mushrooms, keeping it dark and pack you with crap. Think about it for a while. You'll get it later on. They've joined hands to, to make the country a better place. They're against the liberals, or this, that, or against that, and they want, they want to make it better. There's only one thing that makes this country better, and that is a man getting in a pulpit every Sunday, on Thursday night, or whenever he meets with his people, and putting out the truth of the Word of God. Amen. And what they've done is they've linked hands with leagues with the devil's church. And on the world stage today, 80% of the nations of this world are under the control of the Roman Catholic Church through a church-state setup. America's not yet. England is, in a kind of a way. But you go to Canada, you go to Mexico, 
You go to Central America, you go to South America, all of Europe, England, obviously all the Middle East countries are under Islam. What the devil not could not do and accomplish through nations and armies in the Old Testament, he now has accomplished by getting the whole world in the 21st century by his church and his religion. And God's people, because they've been out of the book, lost the book, he took the book from them. They have no wisdom and understanding. They just think it's apple pie in the sky, that we're all working together to make this country better, to make the world better, and it's all a contrite plan to set up the first coming of the Antichrist. God's people were oblivious to it. It was Constantine. All down through history, she has been the one behind the scenes, deal-making with bribery, payoffs, secret alliances that she uses to keep herself in world control without anybody ever noticing it, unless you have wisdom and understanding. But boy, I'll tell you what, that isn't many today. It was Constantine making a deal in 325 AD to consolidate his empire, to keep in control of it, that formed the Roman Catholic Church. He's out there fighting a battle and he, he sees a cross in the sky and hears a voice with this sign thou shalt conquer. And immediately he's now a Christian and he starts his new church. Right at that point is the number one garment change that was the garment changes of all garment changes. That point in 313 at Melvian Bridge, October 17th, an incredible day from history in the Bible. Of all the other garment chains that the devil had done, that one was a masterstroke. He starts that morning being pagan Roman and he ends that night by being Roman Catholic, in a, in a, in a, in a sense. And off it goes. And now you have the symbol of the cross coming into Christianity. You kidding me? The cross has never been a symbol of Christianity. Galatians says, cursed is he that hangeth on a cross. Now everybody, Constantine brings it in. His mama, Helena, goes down there. And you know, you, you go over to the Middle East today in Jerusalem and the, and the, and you, and the Arab and the, and the tour guides and the Jewish tour guides, they just rip these young Christians off royally. They get them on their tour, take them around, and they'll show them the two places that Christ could have been crucified. They'll take them down to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre inside Jerusalem. It'll take them outside the city where Gordon Calvary, and they'll just, and everybody says, oh, it's just so wonderful. Oh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Oh, there's the cave where Jesus was. You know how that got, that, you know how that thing got going? Constantine's mama, Helena, took a pilgrimage down to Jerusalem. He just started the Roman Catholic Church. It's on its way. She goes down to Jerusalem, and she finds, believe it or not, she finds a piece of the original cross that Christ was crucified on. Golly, we got it now. She runs back, tells her, tells her, son, I found the cross, the Christ, a piece of the cross. Mama, where'd you find it? Right here in this garage sale. Constantine goes back, buys the property, and on that spot, builds the church of the Holy Sepulchre. Hey, 
By the time you get, you want wisdom and understanding? Here it comes. By the time you get to the 15th or 16th century, there's so many pieces of the cross in the Roman Catholic churches in Europe, you've got enough to build Fort Apache. Along with breast milk from Mary. Fingernails from Jesus Christ. One church actually claimed to have the blood of Christ in a bottle. You got the shroud of Torin. I told you before, I wasn't even, I wasn't even right with God. I didn't even know that I was saved and I was in Europe and they were taking us through these, these Catholic churches and all these things in the wall here and it was a skull and I asked the guy, the monk, I guess, I said, uh, whose skull is that? He said, that's the head of John the Baptist. You know, he had his head cut off. And I said, oh yeah, I, mm-hmm, that's okay, I remember that. Two weeks later, we were someplace else in southern France, or I forget where it was, Lyons, France, down there someplace. We had another one, and there was another skull, and I asked this monkey, monk, monk. I said, <laughs> I said, I said, because I'm thinking, I knew who the last guy was now. Who's this one? And this is an honest-to-goodness true story. I mean, I have a tendency to lie when I preach. Not this time. <clears throat> I looked at that skull, and I said, whose skull is that? He says, oh, that's the head of John the Baptist. I said, well... Uh, I said, we were just at the other place two weeks ago, and there was a skull there, and he said, that's the head of John the Baptist. How can you have two heads of John the Baptist? And he thought for a minute, and he says, oh, I know. This one's when he was a boy. <laughs> that's what he told me. Constantine, it was the, it was the greatest garment change the devil ever pulled. He threw off the pagan Roman garments. And put on a, the mitre's hat. He put on the golden robe in, in purple and scarlet. He picked up the cup as a symbol of his church. In one fell swoop, he went from pagan Rome. The pagan, the, 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 the pagan, the pagan gods became saints. The pagan churches became, or pagan temples became churches. In just one swoop, he did it. It was the popes who used bribery and secret alliances and favors to get the armies of Europe then to wage war on Bible-believing Christians, granting them favors. It was Pope Charlemagne on Christmas Day, 800 A.D., that did the crowning act of combining the Roman Catholic Church with the state and the the country of, 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 of Rome and Italy. Charlemagne had been kicked off the throne, uh, you know, and, 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 I mean, the Pope had been kicked off the throne. He runs to Charlemagne, his buddy, and he says, hey, they've dethroned me. They're calling me the Antichrist. They've kicked me off the throne. His buddy, Big Chuck, says, hey, you know what? No problem. He takes an army down, wipes out the opposition, <clears throat> sets the Pope down on his throne, and puts him back in power. You know what the Pope did? They had a big coronation day with Charles de Gross. Charlemagne, big Chuck to his friends. And he sat down there and he put, a, he put a golden crown on Charlemagne's head. And he said, Charles the Gross, king of all France, on this day, crowned by God to be the emperor. And right in that moment on Christmas Day in 800 A.D., the Roman Catholic Church and the whole country of of Rome and all of the country of Italy became one. 
That's why the Vatican today is a country. It isn't just a religion. It's a country. It has ambassadors to all the other nations. We have an ambassador to it. It's a country. And at that point right there, and the Pope got the best deal. Charles got to be king. He says, crowned by God. The Pope got to be God. And from that point on, the Pope speaks. You can't deny what he's saying. He speaks for God. Incredible. Deal making, it all goes on. It was the Pope in 1095 who, who bribed the nations of Europe to fight in his holy war, the Crusades. It was the, it was the Pope uh, in 1588 that bribed uh, uh, Spain and said, I'll give you all the possessions and let you have England as a, as a Roman Catholic state if you go in and bring that Protestant nation back to me. And you remember, England didn't have a, nation, a navy. The Spanish Armada was the greatest navy in the world. And that Spanish Armada in 1588 sailed down to take that little country where your King James Bible came from and put him under Roman domination because the Pope had made a deal through bribery to let you have this if you give me this. And all England was on her knees praying for the deliverance of God from that church. And they sailed into the English Channel. And the worst typhoon in 200 years showed up and sunk the whole Spanish Armada. You see, get it. They didn't need a navy. They had a book. And when you have the word of God, you don't need what this world offers you to protect yourself. God himself will take care of his people. We've lost that concept. It was the Roman Catholic Church who made a deal with King Ferdinand of Spain that all the land that was discovered with Columbus in 1492 and then passed that, all of them, Catholics, Cortex, I mean, Vasa da Gama, Ponte de Leon, Magellan, all of them from the Roman Catholic Church. All of them and every place they went from Mexico to South America to Central America, wherever they touch is today a Roman college, a Roman Catholic church state because when they come ashore, based on the Pope's dealings, you can keep the gold, you can keep this, make this land ours because we want to control the world. They're all Roman Catholic today. They're all church setups. You're born in Venezuela, you're born a Catholic. You're born in Rio de Janeiro, you're born a Catholic. You're born in Mexico, you're born a Catholic. You're born in Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador, you're born a Catholic. You know, God's hand in America is an incredible thing. If you study Columbus's log books, he was the first one, he's, he's given credit for discovering America. He really didn't. He, he discovered a little island not the country of San Salvador, but a, a El Salvador, a little island off the, in the Caribbean down there off of, off of Central America. If you look at his logs, he's gone for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks, months without seeing land. His provisions are almost gone. His crew's ready to throw him overboard and turn around and mutiny. He's in a dire strait. And if you look at his course where he's going, <coughs> he's heading right for the, right for the Georgia coastline. And they've been without food, without water for so long, uh, and all kinds of problems. And one day they saw some land-based birds that only live on land, flying in a direction. And so they changed course to follow those birds. And where they landed, and they touched down following those birds, and everything around them became Roman Catholic the next 400 years. God wanted America for the pilgrims. 
He wanted America for you. He wanted America as a nation that wasn't going to be under Roman Catholic domination. He wanted America saved. So he got that little Santa Pinta and Santa Maria, Holy Mother, got them, got them ships to go where everything's Catholic today. He preserved America. If I was a Bible believer and I was in politics, the first thing I'd do is rewrite the words of the Star-Spangled Banner. And I put it in a context that the only reason you got what you got today is because God's hand of providence kept them from getting in. But when you dumped the book, they got in. And they are here. They are here. <clears throat> it was Rome that made a deal with France in our early years of our country, 1754 to 1763. We fought in history, if you even got to it, the French and Indian War. French and Indian War, the British were here. The French and Indian War was nothing more than the Pope making an alliance with France to get some Indians on their side to take back the Americas from the British so it could become Roman Catholic again. Their base today is down in New Orleans, at the Jesuit headquarters in America. New Orleans is named after New Orleans, France, where their headquarters was. You're going to find two of the great figures was a, was a guy by the name of Lord Baltimore, who was Roman Catholic, who did everything he could do. And they named a state after him, Maryland, or in your case, Maryland. See, that's wisdom and understanding. The deals and the bribery are endless. This verse is absolutely doctrinally talking about the wicked man pulling gift after gift after gift out of his bosom to pervert judgment. It was Rome who tried to kill James I in, in the famous gunplot powder explosion over there in England in 1605 called the Jesuit treason in, 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 in Europe. It was Rome who was behind the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, get the book back there, 50 Years of Roman Imperialism. Find out how that every one of those conspirators were the Roman Catholic. Find out that the ones that got away when they got smuggled back into France from Europe, they made them Vatican guards in the Vatican. And yet everybody, everybody in Abraham Lincoln's assassination day, everybody knew that the Roman Catholic Church was involved. How did that get covered up? It was the Roman Catholic Church that was behind the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand of Austria that started World War I. Because just in 1914 in Fatima, Portugal, the Virgin Mary had appeared to three or four little, he, uh, 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 little uh, girls down there in Portugal and uh, gave, their, uh, gave their three secret messages. And the secret messages all came down to the fact that God was going to defeat communism. And three years later, the Bolshevik Revolution came on with Lenin, Trotsky, and, and all communism came into being. And the Roman Catholic Church, for the next to this day, has used her bribery and her power to get our nations to stop communism so Roman Catholicism would, would carry on. And nobody even knows it. Nobody even understands it. You could go to the public library and find everything I'm telling you right now. You think I'm some mad hunchback maniac up here? It was the Roman Catholic Church that backed Adolf Hitler in 1933. Yes, sir. So he could have the Sudetenland. And the deal was, you know what? You can have the Roman Catholic Sudetenland and annex it into Germany, but you fight the, you fight the, you fight the Russians and the communists for us. Adolf Hitler was a Roman Catholic. He killed six million Jews, 
responsible for about 19 million Russian, 250,000 American, God knows how many civilians. Roman Catholic, on his belt buckle, gotten useless, God is with us. Never excommunicated from the church. Heinrich Himmler, Hermann Goring, all of his henchmen, all Roman Catholic. Himmler set the SS guards up uh, in the SS order of the SS uh, troopers after the order of the Vatican guards in the Vatican. They were so against the Russians that they actually brought in Muslim SS, uh, took Muslims out of the, out of the uh, Mideast countries and formed a Hanshar division or the Croatia division. There were actual Muslims that wore SS uniforms and fight to defeat Russia. There's always been a tie there. You had to get the material sometime on the day Mary married Allah. And in the 66 days war, they actually found on the Egyptian soldiers that were trying to defeat the, the, uh, the, uh, the Jerusalem, actually found in Arabic copies of Mein Kampf. Saddam Hussein was the great-grandson of the guy who was over those SS Muslim divisions under Adolf Hitler. <clears throat> and after the war was over and they butchered six million Jews, it was the Roman Catholic Church that smuggles the concentration camp guys, Eichmann, Klaus Barbie, Mengele, all of those guys, and they smuggled them through the Roman Catholic monastery with forged papers in the Roman Catholic South America, where they all lived happily ever after. It was Rome who, who bribed her way into the United States <clears throat> to get all all the government seats held by Roman Catholics to get America into Vietnam so she could stop the worldwide movement of communism. By the time 1960 rolls around, <clears throat> you had to read the book by Avril Manhattan, U.S.-Vatican Alliance. You got McCarthy, Catholic, Attorney General McGrath, Catholic, Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, Catholic, James Matthews, Catholic, Secretary of the Navy, Mark Clark, all the head general of all the ground forces in the, of the United States and Europe, Catholic. You got George Craig, head of the American Legion, Catholic. You got John Fellas, Dulles Foster, Catholic. You got the Kennedy family. You got Alan Dulles, head of the CIA, Catholic, whose son's a Jesuit. <clears throat> all they needed was a Catholic president. That's how we got into Vietnam. We were paying for the Vietnam War when the French were still in it before we ever got in it. The French got defeated. Colonel Spellman out of New York pulled the strings with the political movement. They made their deals. And we went to Vietnam. When we got to Vietnam, I forget the guy, Niang or Nayong, those guys' names all throw me anyhow. He was the president. The CIA went in with DM who was a Roman Catholic trained in Georgetown University by the Jesuits, groomed by the CIA, who was in connection with the Roman Catholic Church, pulled a coup, got this guy out, put DM on the, on, the, on the presidency, and then DM immediately started to persecute everybody that wasn't Roman Catholic. Incredible. Remember those stories, some of you weren't even born yet, of those Buddhist monks sitting in the street pouring gasoline on themselves, setting themselves on fire? You know why they were doing that? They were doing that because they were being persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church, Diem, who was put in by the CIA, who was connected with the United States, and the whole thing was set up by bribery and everything so she could run the world. <clears throat> Just going out live, I'm going to be careful taking the dog out tonight. Yeah. 
Read a book sometime. We got in a bookstore, Vietnam, Why Did We Go? Avril Manhattan. In his book, <coughs> Washington, Moscow, Vatican Alliance, Avril Manhattan lived 1914, died in 1990, the world's foremost authority on the Roman Catholic Church in modern times, laid out all the deceit, all the bribery, all the black ops, all the, all the, all the things <coughs> that was going on. In his book, Vatican Billions, he lays out the net worth of the Roman Catholic Church. He, he shows you that she is the, the richest, most powerful nation on this planet. Her riches and her wealth <coughs> outstrip anybody, any five nations you put together. And yet they go around with the poor sisters of who or the poor brothers of so-and-so. Every, every monk takes a, or every priest takes a vow of poverty. Well, somebody's living high on a hog. Rome was behind the assassination of President Kennedy. Get the material back there. Who killed JFK? You see, our country was totally dominated by the Roman Catholics. All we needed was a Roman Catholic president. Roman Catholic president had never been in this country. Nobody ever thought a Catholic would get elected because Catholics were so badly thought of. And in 1962, whenever it was, uh, he became a president of the United States, first Roman Catholic. And everybody thought, now we got it made. We were already in Vietnam. And it is an incredible thing. But you see, Jack Kennedy, with all of his problems, he wasn't, he wasn't Rome's puppet. He really wasn't. And uh, it was a thing where he realized that the, uh, he realized that the war in Vietnam was, was not a good deal. And he realized that we shouldn't got into it. You see, he had already been through the Bay of Pigs, and he saw how the CIA had set him up. And the Bay of Pigs, Cuba, trying to take Cuba and the throne Castle was a fiasco. And he got hit for it. This is where the famous line comes from that I use all the time. I learned him through history. He had to be, as being the president, he had to take responsibility for what the CIA did. But he started to demantle the CIA. He was going to get back. But he made this favorite line. With a disaster in the Bay of Pigs, he says, you know what? Success has many fathers. But failure is an orphan. And that is so true. He saw what was going on in Vietnam. Some say that Billy Graham won him to Christ. I hope he did. I don't know. But on October the 11th, 1963, he issued an executive order 263. Sometimes if you Google it, you'll find uh, NSAM 263. That's National Security Action Memorandum. And in that executive order, he said that we're going to pull out of Vietnam. Roman Catholic Church couldn't let that happen. CIA couldn't let that happen. Nobody could let it happen. This whole country was run now and Rome was firmly in. She was firmly in. On October 11, 1963, he said, we're going to pull him out. On November 23, 1963, just a few short weeks later, he's assassinated in Dallas. And Lyndon Johnson becomes president of the United States. The first thing he does is rescind that executive order, put us back in Vietnam for the next 10, 15 years. Wisdom and understanding. You want it? It's in the book. You say, well, I went to, I went to Rockhurst College and I did uh, my degree. I got my degree in political science and political history. I went to Dollar General and got mine for a buck. <laughs> and today it's everywhere around us. The wicked man has invaded Bible Christianity in this country completely. Through secret gifts out of the bosom. They can freely call America, the news media, and all the political garbage that goes on. 
The Jesuit movement was started way back uh, uh, in, uh, uh, in Europe. Uh, she has now come to the place where she has, through many things that she's done. You know, and most people don't know that there's two popes. There's Pope Francis, who's really a figurehead. The real guy that gets it done is the black pope, who's the general of the Jesuit movement. They just hired a new one, or elected a new one. Art T. Rose Sosa, or something like that. But you stop and look at it. Over the last 50 years, the Jesuit movement, she has completely taken over America from behind the scenes. She's taken over your education program, so you don't get any history. She's taken away uh, the love for veterans and the love for, for people who have served their country, and now you're warmongers. You saw the thing in the news, I don't know if you saw it or not, that the uh, California National Guard went over to, they were, when they were so desperate for troops to go over and fight in the Middle East, they offered these National Guard guys uh, bonus checks if they'd re-enlist, $15,000, $10,000 that they'd re-enlist. So all these guys took the money and all these guys went over, some of them fought five more tours over there. And now today, our own government, our own military saying they want that money back and they're suing them, putting liens and loans on their money to get it back after they told them they could go and they give it to them and we fought for this country. What is wrong with this country? Amen. Well, whatever is wrong with it, Hillary's not going to fix it and Trump ain't going to fix it either. I'll tell you who's going to fix it. Right over there. The last 400 years, every dictator of any part of the world that ever challenged the world, from Charlemagne, Napoleon, King Wilhelm, the Southern generals in the Civil War, Tito, Mussolini, Karl Marx, Lenin, Stalin, Trotsky, Adolf Hitler, Rudolf Hess, Hermann Goering, Heinrich Himmler, Castro, the dictators in Central and South America, uh, the down in El Salvador where the liberation theology started with Archbishop Romeo, uh, Romero, uh, the dictators of Europe, the last 400 years, the war in North Island, uh, every one of them was a Roman Catholic, every one of them. And Proverbs says, the way they did it is having a secret gift in the bosom. And, and here's the reason they got away with it. Bible says, wisdom is before him that hath understanding, but the eyes of the fool are in the ends of the earth. All the great dictators and leaders of the world constantly had, they had no wisdom, no understanding of history who God was or what he was doing. So instead of having their eyes on God and his word, they had their eyes of a fool and looked to the ends of the earth. They always thought that having all the power and having being nations and having all this stuff could really satisfy them. Look at their lives. They all end in disaster. Adolf Hitler promised a thousand-year Reich. He had plans to redo Munich. He had plans to put a a, a, a building in Munich that was so big uh, that they were afraid that it was so big with the air conditioning and the, getting crowds of people in there and the hot air and the warm air missing at the top that it would actually cause rainstorms in the building. He had planned for a thousand years to reshape Europe after his way of thinking. You know how he ended up? He ended up in a pit soaked with gasoline and now he's in a Russian shoebox someplace in a locked cabinet. They all end that way. Having eyes to the end of the earth will never solve your problems. You have to have your eyes on the one who made the earth. And never go into the place where they see what God is doing and fall easily prey to the wicked man who will bring in under his own religion the control of the world. Today, his church stands as the number one religion on the world. 
I don't care if it's Fox News, CNN, you go, ABC, NBC, wherever you want to go. When the Pope comes to this country, it's a media fiasco. It's the Roman Catholic Church in every aspect of everything in this world as the number one precedent. That's what the devil wanted. You and me in a bomb shelter basement, we're nothing. The world looks at us and thinks we're just a cult. We're a bunch of just goofy people that are all messed up. They don't understand. And yet you're the ones that have the truth. He has painted the picture for that garment change. Incredible. That was the sixth garment change, by the way. And there's only one garment change left. Then it's right around the corner. The whole world thinks his church is the greatest church in the world, and the whole world thinks his Bible is the greatest Bible in the world. He did his work well, didn't he? Got to take your hat off to him. I'm not wearing a hat, but if I had one, I would. Now, let me, in the last few moments here, let me give you the smaller version of this same exact thing that is in a practical way for you and me, what we can learn from it. God's people do the exact same thing, just on a smaller scale. Hey, when we get our eyes off of God and His Word and then we put our eyes and focus on the world and not God anymore, when a nation does that, it falls into apostasy and gets deceived and gets destroyed. And so would a child of God. When you get your eyes off the Lord and the Word of God and you start putting to the ends of the earth, it's always going to wind up bad for you. You know, as I thought about this, I thought about the term, the ends of the earth. I love the Bible, the way it puts things in a common, general thing, the way we Yet when you stop and think about it, it, it brings up a whole concept. The ends of the earth, the ends of the earth. You know, there is no end of the earth. The ends of earth is sphere. Circle. Isn't that the true way life is when you don't do what God wants you to do and you go after the world? Your life is just one big circle. One big mess. Just one revolution after another of more problems, more heartache, more trouble. You'll go through the same scenarios, same problems, same people, same circumstance, same thing. It's just one big endless circle. That Bible's an incredible book. Amen. And all down through history, the devil wants to rule the world. And in the Old Testament, he did it by nations. And he brought those nations in and he got those nations together where he could control them to, to wipe out God's nation. But he knew there was a time coming when those nations wouldn't be able to get it done. So he had to get a church because God got a church. He wasn't the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. And now, it's God's church up against His church. The great key to the Bible and Christianity is for you and me to keep our eyes fixed on two fundamental things. One, the coming of Christ. Two, the establishment of His kingdom. You keep your eyes focused on those two things, but everything you do, you won't get too far out of line. That puts all history in perspective. It puts all of our life in perspective. Thursday night I showed you a book, Who's Who in Church History. And it was a good little book. Non-biblical church history, but it's a good little book. But you know what? A better one than that is the Bible itself. Because the Bible itself will show you who's who in God's plan. And when you couple that with history, you know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. Job 41, verses 12 and 13 says, the wisdom, Through wisdom and understanding... I will not conceal his parts. That's God's men, 
versus the devil's men. You'll know who's who. It says back there that I will not, every politician, every Christian, every church leader, in many cases, has fallen into that trap. And now they're part of the system. And it's bringing everything to a final climax. And most of God's people are walking around just with their head in the air, not even knowing what is going on around them. They think it's all fine. Oh, you're saved. You're Christian. Oh, you're Christian. They don't have any doctrine in their life whatsoever to know what his church is, what Christ's church is. How could you ever figure out whose Bible's who? See, I don't want you here uninformed. I want you to know what's going on here. I want you to know what God is doing. I want you to know who the good guys are, and who the Bible says the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. You get in that book, you see his face. You get in the devil's book, you don't see his face. You see somebody else's face.